Hey, hey, and welcome back to season two of the Ready Podcast. Well, if there's one thing I like to do on every episode, that's have the big conversations that explore the future of technology, work and beyond. And on this edition, I speak with Emma Weston, the CEO and co-founder of Agri Digital, an Australian tech company that's shaking up the global agriculture supply chain. So today you'll get to hear Emma's fascinating story that started in the world of law and shifted to blockchain, fintech and agtech. And that's involved taking her fair share of risks and getting to a place where she gets to lead a company that's making a difference in the world. Emma's also an inspiration to other women in both agriculture and the tech sector. She talked to me about being the only woman in the room and using that experience to help foster cultural change so that other companies can rethink and realize the benefits of true diversity. I hope it's a conversation that might also change your world. So without further ado, I'm really pleased to introduce my next guest, Emma Weston. So Emma Weston, welcome to the Ready Podcast. Yeah, excited to be here, Mark. Thank you. Eventually, we we made it work, right? I know. We had a couple of stops and starts, but we're here now, which is awesome. So really looking forward to talking to you Uh, because I know it's an amazing story. (laughs) So uh, and look, I guess I start by saying that, you know, you're a founder and you're a tech entrepreneur now. And yeah. I'd really like to talk about what you do at AgriDigital. But previously, you've described your career journey as a bit like looking like an ECG <laughs> chart. If you could just walk us through your story to, to how you've ended up here. Yeah, I'll just give the sort of the quick potted history, um, and then we can dive into anything that's more interesting. Although AgriDigital is an ag tech company, as you can probably tell from the name, and we've been going for a few years now, I actually didn't grow up on a farm. I'm actually, as we're speaking, I'm, I'm calling in from my farm, so I'm a farmer now, but didn't start off life that way. So very much a girl from the berms in Melbourne, you know, literally white picket fence, typical two parents, one brother, you know, one dog type upbringing. Um And when I left school, I went and did law, which was kind of all I absolutely wanted to do um, until I got there and then realised it probably wasn't quite what I thought or I wasn't as well suited. But I sort of persevered through law school and and ended up in private practice for a couple of years. And it was a really good, you know, start to my career. And I've kind of, you know, always been thankful that I did a law degree and I had those few years in private practice. But it also confirmed that I just wasn't set out for partner track. Um, And I realized that really early and didn't really know what to do from there, to be honest, because that had been kind of plan A, B, C and everything else. So, you know, it was a real, um, it was a bit of a shock to suddenly find out that that wasn't um, the way things were going to work out. But really, luckily, I was picked up by the Australian Wheat Board and brought in-house or, you know, they they sort of headhunted me for a a role as a junior counsel in-house. And that seemed like the perfect next step for me because I didn't want to be in private practice but didn't really want to leave the law because I didn't know what to do next. And so going in-house where I was still a lawyer but was suddenly confronted with real business problems in real time rather than just, you know, waiting for a problem to hit my desk as a lawyer sitting, you know, up in the ivory tower was, you know, a real eye-opener. But the biggest eye-opener of all was how much I loved the customer base. So it was, you know, it was the fact that I was working with growers. You know, what AWB did or the Australian Wheat Board did was it was the, originally it was basically the government-endorsed monopoly for the export of wheat in Australia. It's since been completely deregulated the market. But 
at that time, that's what it did. And so, you know, the customer base was this diverse group of growers and traders and storage operators and pool operators and financiers and uh, just really opened my eyes. And I just absolutely loved it. Any excuse I could get to kind of go out in the field, I, I would make the flimsiest <laughs> excuses that, you know, I, I um, you know, couldn't draft this contract without seeing how growers would sign it in the wild type thing. So, you know, it was kind of early product mm-hmm. testing, I guess, is the way you can think about that. But I, I did stay there for a few years and then I basically left and moved into, I guess, what you would call entrepreneurial ag. I joined um, a partner, Bob McKay, in his company, Ag Farm, and that was at the time that the market was deregulating. And we saw an opportunity to take that, you know, into a, to a national level, and which we did. And we did really successfully and sold that off into chunks to a listed company and a NASDAQ listed company in the US. And then at the same time, we started building out our own software. But then, you know, as you said, that ECG chart, I kind of left and I went and flirted with an organic fertilizer company that didn't really work. So that was a kind of a bit of, you know, where I needed a bit of life support, <laughs> um, you know, as, as part of the career. And, and overall, you know, I think I look back and everything seems to have had a reason and a place. But I think the, the key kind of thing was that I was always really open to opportunity and that's probably why there's some real ups and downs, different parts through that career journey before I sort of settled in and, you know, started AgriDigital with Bob and also our third co-founder, Ben, now six years ago. Well, um, look, it's such a great story and it's clearly not linear. <laughs> or, or <laughs> no, the, definitely or, not. Or the beautiful straight line. And like, it, I think it really strikes me that you haven't been afraid to make changes And it also sounds like you kind of look back at this patchwork of experiences that have all gone together to help you to carve out, you know, the space that you've eventually found. Is that is that a fair reflection? I think that's, you know, that's super fair. And I think it is a patchwork and, you know, patchwork quilts are much stronger than, you know, just blankets, to be honest, right? You know, it's it's kind of all that stitching together that gives it strength. And I don't want to kind of make that analogy go too far, but you know, I'd be really proud if that was the way that my career turned out, that it was kind of a patchwork quilt of experience and relationships and, um, you know, efforts and failures and things that I've tried and done well in. So, you know, I, I think that would be great um, if that's kind of the way it ended up working out. But I think also, I, I also have no patience or, you know, with the idea that, you know, success is this really kind of straight line all the way yeah. up. And, yeah. you know, I just don't think that's the reality for most people. And it certainly hasn't been for me, but I think, you know, sounds a little bit trite, but, you know, I'm definitely the richer for it. Yeah. You know, Daniel Cohen from Flair was on the podcast uh, in season one, and he talks about the drunkard's journey, <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> similarly sometimes the uh, the random events that uh, take us to where we are, similar to the patchwork. It's really interesting. I'd like to come back to sort of what it takes to succeed and, you know, what it takes to work and, and actually succeed and talk about what it is to be a woman in the, in the tech industry as well. But let's switch to talking about your work at AgriDigital. So, you know, I feel that whatever industry you're in, I think we can all learn from the problems that you're solving there and how you approach it. So can you tell us a bit about what the team are working on? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So at AgriDigital, you know, we're on a mission to digitize the grain supply chain. And and the reason that we're doing that and, you know, looking to become core digital and capital infrastructure for the grain supply chain, but then eventually for other agri supply chains as well, is that what we're dealing with is an industry that is the least digitized industry in the world Mm -hmm. by a really long way, but it's also the world's biggest employer. 
So the ability to kind of capture the digital dividend or the innovation dividend and apply that over you know, a huge swathe of the population at a very primary but foundational part of the economy, um, I think is just incredibly exciting. It's empowering to work with. So, you know, there's a big mission that we're part of at AgriDigital, but we certainly don't do it alone. The bit that we're really focused in and that I guess is, you know, occupies the bulk of our time these days is using the digital platform that we have built and that we launched in 2017 to grain storage operators, grain traders, and grain farmers, and to use that platform, which is completely the full automation and workflow management tool for everything to do with grain from the moment it's harvested to the moment that it's exported or that it's sold and consumed domestically, for example, by a flour mill or a crusher or a feedlot. To take that and the underlying data set and use that to de-risk the supply chain for all participants so that, you know, we get this really competitive, diverse supply chain that everyone can participate in because it's very, very concentrated in the middle of the supply chain. It's diverse at the, the, you know, it's like an hourglass, basically, you know, diverse set of producers, very concentrated set of operators in the middle and and quite only a few. And then obviously a diverse set of consumers at the bottom. And, you know, that really concerns me as one of those consumers and one of those producers um, because, you know, it represents a power imbalance. And so at AgriDigital, you know, we really think we're here to address that power imbalance through technology, but also through capital, because the other thing that our customers are lacking is not just access to best-in-class technology, but access to capital when they need it, as they need it, in order to pursue growth opportunities. And that's, you know, really the second kind of pillar of our mission at the moment. So, uh, you know, one of the things you said there that really struck me, I think, is what attracted me to the technology. You can actually have a very significant impact that's often disproportionate to the amount of effort or the lines of code uh, that that you write or the effort that you expend, right? And it really feels that you're coming here from a place of purpose. Can you sort of share, you know, the sense that you have that you're sort of able to use the company to, to drive change in the world and make a dent in the world? Yeah, I think that's really important to me personally, but also I think as the company has grown and evolved, it's just become part of our culture. Yeah. Um, you know, one of our values is, is is basically to lean in and listen and having impact is not just about kind of the proactive things that you do. It's also the way that you respond to what others do. And, you know, I really like to think that at AgriDigital we're building a team of, you know, proactive people, but also those who are, incredibly responsive to the challenges that have been, you know, that we're facing globally. Um, And we think that's kind of part of our secret sauce. Um, It does make it hard to hire for, I will say that. So, you know, we are kind of of quite picky around who (laughs) comes into the team, you know, and sometimes it's just not for everyone either. Like it's not so much that you have... um, you know, someone's opting out, um, you know, it's it's more that they've just seen that this is not the where they're going to have their impact or this is not where um, is, is the right place for them. I guess the other thing about having a mission and, and being really purpose-driven is understanding time and place and, you know, not everything needs to be mission-driven or purpose-driven, you know, 100% of the time. That's incredibly tiring. So it's trying to work out, 
you know, which points you kind of press the button and, you know, kind of really lift the ignition switch towards that purpose and that sense of mission versus, you know, when sometimes you're building bedrock foundational components that will eventually, you know, lead to the building blocks of that mission, but may not look like that right now. So, you know, we're still trying to get that right at AgriDigital. I think that that's a really hard thing to explain to our customers. And so that's also something that we're grappling with, how to better connect with our customers, share our journey with our customers and explain, you know, what it's going to take to get to this mission of having complete digital and capital infrastructure available across the supply chain. But yeah, I'm, I'm not uh, turning away from it anytime soon. <laughs> I've, uh, I've been doing it for five or six years now and I'm really excited for the next five or six. So you know, we must be doing something right. Oh, very cool. I think it sounds like you've been very, very thoughtful uh, about how you articulate the mission. And could you maybe talk about, I know you've looked at some really interesting technologies along the way to solve the problem. So can you share a bit about your approach to innovation, solving problems for tech, I guess the broader potential for that and what you've learned for, you know, for other industries? Yeah, I think for anyone that may have followed us a little bit on our journey or perhaps uses um, the Ready Podcast as a, a launching pad to have a look at what AgriDigital's done at different points in time, you know, you'll probably see that we've flirted with, um, you know, actually flirting is probably not the right idea. We, we, we actually went pretty deep on blockchain in the early days. And, and the reason for that was we were looking at the way we could connect digital things with the physical world and track the digital asset, if you like, into the physical components of a supply chain. And we could do that in a way that meant we could trust the information in that digital space. And I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of blockchain, which you know probably you've already done on the podcast, but it seemed to us that it was a really exciting technology. Um, and this was back like first time we really looked at it before we even well, before I even started AgriDigital with Bob and Ben actually was back in 2015 and it was kind of more you know taken up with cryptocurrency at that stage but I was really interested in the accounting for Bitcoin in particular you know which obviously was the blockchain what we soon realized though is that there's no technology blockchain or any other technology that alone is going to solve what is largely a systems problem and you know, what we needed to do rather than go deep on one particular technology was be really clear about the problem that we wanted to solve and then look at how, you know, we then brought to bear a series of technologies, tools, and also people, um, you know, into the solution space and still very excited about the technology, but we've become real pragmatic technologists at AgriDigital because we do feel that we need to deliver value today. And sometimes the latest yeah. technology is not the right tool to deliver value today, even if it may be the right tool, you know, or technology to deliver value in the future. So, you know, we kind of make sure we deliver value today whilst keeping an eye on what's coming and trying to use what's coming to drive improvements um, and further value in our product. Yeah. We've got to kind of be broader than just saying, oh, let's go and use blockchain or, you know, let's yeah. go and use elastic. Um, you know, it's like kind of what is the, problem we need to solve here and what are the you know yeah. the capabilities that a technology is bringing and sometimes what is what works today is not going to work tomorrow um, yeah. and I think that's what makes it really interesting actually I mean if I yeah. had my time again I you know as I said I didn't I don't regret doing law but I think computer <laughs> science would have been amazing so. <laughs> so so you flirted with blockchain you got engaged for a while but you, you didn't yeah. end up getting married is that about right yeah I think what we realized <laughs> I think what we realized is 
two things. One, that um, the technology was quite immature when we started, you know, so there's a, right, there probably is a relationship analogy that we could put to that, but <laughs> it was quite, it was quite immature. And so, um, and we didn't quite know how we wanted to use it, how we wanted to work with it. We were doing things that were interesting, but couldn't quite bring it all together into a cohesive offering to the market. The second thing was that we realised at AgriDigital, and this is really important, that we were about grain. That's what we were going to do. We were going to go really deep on grain. And, you know, our aim is to be the world's best grain supply chain from a digital perspective. And that meant making compromises. And one of those compromises was technologies that were much broader and were suited to a much broader set of markets and commodities than just what we were building at AgriDigital. Um, you know, we had to kind of change our focus a little bit. And so as part of that, we actually put all of our blockchain work into a separate company, which is called Giora, G-E-O-R-A. And it's Giora that has kind of been spun out of AgriDigital and has now taken all of that blockchain technology and applying it to a much broader set of wow. use cases than what AgriDigital was yeah. focused on. Yeah. Uh, look, it's super interesting. I think for those listening and really useful examples grappling with new and emerging technologies right and how to think about those and uh, and not falling in love with them too much necessarily as well right and, and focusing on the outcome so let's go back to your personal journey again if we may so sure. i think that you know no doubt along this patchwork journey there's been challenges so just really interested to to hear how you've i guess approached obstacles along the way and overcome those to kind of build this really meaningful career and, and then ultimately the successful company. Yeah, well, I think it's a constant, um, you know, a constant journey in some ways. But look, you know, a lot of people who I've chatted with in the past or who know me and know a little bit about my career have often thought that the biggest challenge was probably going to be being a woman um, in agriculture. Not many women working in agribusiness, at least. Um, quite a few more women working in agriculture, but there weren't many women working in agribusiness, particularly when I started. And then when you kind of put the tech lens over it as well, it's kind of like, wow, how many are doing kind of ag and tech? The happy answer is a hell of a lot more today than, than there, there were yesterday. Um, and, you know, the months and years before that. And, you know, in reality, I've never seen that as a challenge. I've never thought about it that way. In fact, sometimes probably calling it out, you know, is a good thing. And um, someone did that the other day. I was actually on a, a doing a workshop and uh, there were 20 participants roughly, I think, mostly in the innovation tech um, and kind of, uh, I guess, CTO, um, Chief Innovation Officer Space in, in Agri. And I was actually the only woman on the call and I didn't even notice um, that yeah. I was the only woman on the yeah. call because yeah. it was just so commonplace to me to often be the only woman in a room or on a call. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a lot that we need to improve like kind of at an industry level there, but I've never personally found that to be the challenge. I mean, the, the most recent set of challenges for me has actually been around how to take a good idea and turn that into a scaled up company, given the, the serious business challenges that the world has faced over the past few years. I mean, that's been the most challenging part for me personally over the past decade. It hasn't been coming up with good ideas. It hasn't been building the initial product. It hasn't been getting, you know, the initial capital support. It's actually the next, um, you know, probably crossing that valley of death, as some yeah. people like to call it. You know, that's yeah. really been where I've had to put the most effort, intelligence, and also 
I think that's where I've been so happy with so many of the relationships and partnerships that I've built out um, throughout my career because they're the people that have come in to support, who have come in, you know, to say with the encouragement and to say keep going, you know, you're doing a really good thing. So, you know, more more power to to, to the people who are often the supporters um, and the followers and not necessarily the leaders because we couldn't do what we do without them. <laughs> uh, absolutely right. So actually it might be really illustrative. You told me once a story about, attending your first meetup um blockchain meetup yeah uh, so would you mind sharing that and yeah just tell us how you made that work yeah so um i guess like in the early days uh we as i said we were you know we were flirting to getting serious with blockchain and one of the uh this is you know this is a real kind of personal story but you know one of the things i thought i better do is like well if i'm going to start you know, using this technology and getting deep with this technology, I better actually see it in action. And so I'd heard that there was a Bitcoin meetup at a pub in Sydney. And um, I turned up and like, seriously, I I was the only woman, um, but that was kind of expected. It What I didn't expect was I was definitely the oldest person by a really long way. You know, when I turned up, I said, hi, I'm Emma Weston. And everyone like took this step back and they were like, whoa, you don't give your real name, you know. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was still kind of a, a hangover from, you know, the cyberpunk days, um, yeah. you know. Did you, and did you, did you come up, Did do you have a pseudonym that you operate under when you're in the, when you're hacking or in the blockchain community? Look, I could tell you, but, you know, what I'd have to do, I'd have to kill you. So. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I think um, I'm not a good stealth operator. So uh, that, that, that wasn't, I You're, wasn't cut out for that. Yeah, you come through the front door. Okay, I understand. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. And I wipe my feet really clearly on the, on the mat as I go through. So um, I leave pl- plenty of evidence behind. But, yeah, so I went to this meetup and, you know, just was blown away by this group of probably 16 to 30-year-old guys mainly. And, um, you know, they were talking a language I frankly did not understand, but having a whale of a time and that that I could get, you know, I could get how much fun and enthusiasm there was. And anyway, I kind of sat there for a while and finally I said, you know, look, um, how do you get a Bitcoin? <laughs> and um, feeling super stupid and, you know, I'm not a boomer, but I felt like one at that moment. And the guys were just so welcoming. Like it was just incredible. They just turned around and they were like, oh, yeah, Emma's a newbie. Like let's get her set up. And, you know, they got me set up with a wallet and then they, you know, we practiced transferring Bitcoin back and forth and, you know, they had me buying beers with the Bitcoin they were, you know, passing to me. And it was just, um, it was eye-opening because, yeah, I mean, I guess I took a bit of a risk turning up, but how welcoming this group who were nothing like me, you know, they didn't look like me, they didn't sound like me, they didn't do anything like me, but they completely welcomed me, you mm. know, into their pack and, you know, kind of initiated me, um, you know, with a um, digital wallet set up. And I just, you know, realised that I was missing, like by, by being a bit of a straighty 180 and sticking to what I knew, I was missing out on so much. And, you know, it's just been a, yeah, it was just a cool life lesson, I guess. Yeah. And uh, do you think is the learning here to lean in and you may be surprised what happens uh, and maybe, you know, use the fact that in this case, you're, you're a woman in tech to your advantage. If you can be confident about who you are, not necessarily yeah. in every single context, but you know who you are 
and you're okay. Like I was okay with the fact there was, you know, a heap of stuff I didn't know um, and I was going to admit it and I wasn't pretending to be anyone I wasn't. The risk was so low, in fact. Um, You know, it was so low. And what was the worst that could happen? You know, I could get snubbed by, you know, a a group of young hackers um, and crypto enthusiasts and I would walk out the door and go, okay, I won't do that again. But, you know, so actually the things that are scary are mostly in your head. Being different is an advantage if you can play it that way. It's not always. I absolutely understand there are times when being different is not safe, but, you know, largely I'm talking about relatively safe environments here and and being different gets you noticed and that's been hugely advantageous at different points in time for me as a woman in tech um, and a woman in ag tech, being able to put up my hand and have an opinion. People listen because they don't get to hear it well, they do more now, but back yeah. in the day, they didn't get to hear it from, mm. you know, a young, youngish white woman, um, you know, in quite the same way. So, uh, you know, absolutely realise that that experience may not translate for everyone, but I wish people who do feel, you know, on the outer or, you know, notice their difference to the mainstream or to the majority could use that more to their advantage and feel really comfortable about that because I do think we would get, like there's so much value in diversity and mm. if we could have more people confidently bringing forward and, um, you know, who they are to the table, whether it's in tech or business or education or whatever it may be, you know, I think the whole world would be better off, to be honest. Awesome message. Really love that. <laughs> uh, and um, just before we move on, let's talk a bit more about diversity, actually, because there's a, some other areas I'd like to explore. You mentioned there about taking risk, and it does strike me that you have had a propensity to take risk. So I'm just sort of interested in where that came from. You know, I think that, you know, you made a real point there, right? We often worry about things that you're actually, you know, what is the worst thing that can happen? And, you know, uh, often very small. And loss aversion is a, is a really, you know, is a really strong instinct, yeah. that, you know, bias that we have, right? So can you talk a bit about how you've approached risk? Yeah, I think I I used to always categorise myself as being really risk averse. And I thought, you know, that was kind of why I tended towards law. But when I kind of look back at that, you know, ECG of a career um, that we were talking about earlier, the reality would tell me that that's a different, you know, that that's different, you know, and um, that in fact, I've probably been really, really comfortable taking lots of different risks that I probably categorised more as opportunities. And so, you know, I think there was a mindset thing that I, had early on, which was um, to look for where there was opportunity and to to back myself to go for it. And the backing myself to go for it definitely came from my parents, you know, and my family. That was just, you know, just part of the mantra of growing up in our our house was um, that we had every right to be there. um, And, you know, that we should, if we thought we could do it, then we could. And so we should back ourselves and our parents would do that and they would back us as well. And and that led to a whole lot of different decisions that my brother and I in particular made at different points in time. And, and our yeah. parents were really great at backing us. I think later in life, you know, my husband really taught me to kind of go deeper on the risk side mm-hmm. and to actually really think differently about risk. And he would often challenge me by, you know, asking how risky is it? <laughs> you know, like, well, let's mm-hmm. look at it. How risky is this? You know, as opposed to just sort of stopping it saying this is a risk. Yeah, maybe it is, but it not it's not a risk is a risk is a risk, right? There's a whole spectrum of risk out there. And, you know, really thinking around, okay, this is this is a risk, but this is how I'm going to mitigate it. And his really, you know, I if 
he, he just sees risk and um, opportunity in exactly the same breath. And, yeah. you know, I'm probably not quite there in the same way, but that's been, you know, having that sort of role modelled alongside you and seeing that has really opened up my tolerance for risk yeah. as well. Um, I think also then at AgriDigital, building a really capable executive and management team around me who kind of have the everyday and the operational piece under control. And I don't know what you find, you know, at ReadyTech, but that enables me to kind of take some different risks and to engage in a different way. So, you know, it kind of came with me modulating myself and then kind of looking at how my partner and I, you know, approach life. And then it was like in business with AgriDigital, having this incredibly capable team around me, you know, just made me able to do things that I otherwise, you know, might have seen as too risky if I was by myself. So maybe the thing is not to be by yourself, (laughs) you know, to to do it as part of a team, right? It's always always going to be riskier when it's just you alone. But, you know, having those capable people around you definitely do risk the situation. Yeah, no, I really, really share it with you in terms of parents. I had very, uh, I had an entrepreneurial father and and I think, I guess I saw that you you could take risk and it was fun. Uh, yeah. you know, to take risk and try different things. And so, you know, ro- I think role models in that are so important. And I you know, personally trying to instill very much the same in, in my kids, you know, that uh, that they are also, I think, knowing that there is a safety blanket there is helpful when, when you're trying to instill that stuff. So diversity technology is obviously the fastest growing industry in the world. And access to these jobs is, you know, so important, you know, they and they pay really well. And I think also, you know, the work is just, is super interesting and it's rewarding, right? So I think access to this industry is just so important. So to, to look at a couple of those, I guess, perspectives on gender, and, and if we may go back to women in technology again, yeah. um, I know that you, I know you work with Inspiring Girls International. So just keen to hear what you've learned from that experience. Um, and I guess... What are we sort of seeing in our school systems and, you know, access to STEM and, you know, these sorts of areas that can help to bring more women into the technology industry? Yeah, I mean, look, it's something that, you know, I'm really passionate about because I do think unless there's positive efforts made to bring women and other non majority, you know, I don't want to call them minority groups because you can't say a woman is a minority group, but they're, they're not in the majority in tech into this industry where there's so much opportunity, so much future orientation and so much value to be had from that diversity around the table as well. But it's just not going to happen by itself is my belief. Now, other people may think differently, but my life, you know, and and my kind of what I've seen, um, you know, tends me to think that more proactivity is required. And I'm also, you know, you know, throw it out there. I'm not I'm not averse to quotas in in the right circumstances because sometimes you need to make change and you need to get it happening really quickly. And the barriers to change are so extreme that unless you create some artificial, you know, ladders to to climb up and and over, we're just not going to get there and not in my lifetime anyway. And, you know, just speaking personally, like I have four children, three stepchildren and one biological child, um, two boys and two girls, and they should, you know, they should have the girls should have every opportunity the boys have the boys should have every opportunity the girls have and to think that my youngest daughter may still be fighting stuff that I'm fighting for and my mum was fighting for is just <laughs> like just mind-blowing it's just yeah. crazy there's so much that the world has to contend with um you know from a climate crisis and those sorts of things that if we just can't get some of the fundamental equality right women continue to pay a price so you know that led me to thinking about 
not just what we could be doing or what I could be doing at AgriDigital to contribute there, but, you know, what I could be doing earlier in the piece, particularly at school level. And I was really, really excited to be part of Inspiring Girls because that is a proactive program that is helping future young women visualise a really positive future for themselves. It doesn't necessarily need to be in tech. It's not just about tech, but it's about opening their minds up Um, And it does it through role modeling. So it brings in role models and says, here, see someone else who has done this. This is, this is, you know, this is available to you basically. And then connects those girls with the role models um, so that they can help define their own paths. The one constant, and you spoke about it earlier, um, alluded to it earlier, is the support of parents. Very, very difficult when parents are not supportive of these types of pathways and, Sometimes that's support. the biggest influence of all, you have to say, wouldn't you, of, of everything, you know, oh, whether it be, you know, your absolutely. school or your, your peers, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm also probably on record saying that we really need to shake up our school system um, and, you know, we are not preparing teachers, in my view, adequately for the job that they have to do, the incredibly in- important job they have to do of curating and teaching our youth and helping them to find really successful paths because we're not, we haven't changed, you know, enough the teaching and the pedagogical methods, the educational methods. There's no point just working with uh, children, you know, students is what I found. You actually have to work with schools and you have to work with tapes and you have to work with universities and, you know, the educational institutions themselves. And so, that also led, and you know, this bit of my story as well, because you know, we are uh, we see each other very often in this context, but you know, led, and I'm sure you know you were motivated in the same way to join the digital skills organization because as a Commonwealth government company that is really chartered with helping to reshape the nation's digital future through a an enhanced digital skills base that is spread evenly across the population. And that is focused around target areas of opportunity for the nation as well. You know, we're setting people up for success. So, yeah, something I'm super passionate about. I think also, you know, if I may, Mark, when we think about tech roles for women, there's there's some really notable successful women out there, which is awesome. It's just kind of how do we normalize that? Because a lot of yeah. a lot of young girls in particular say, well, I'm I'm not that. You know, I'm not going to be Mel Perkins. I'm not going to be you know, whoever it may be, Miley Carnegie, you know, at, um, at ANZ. I'm, you know, former leader of Google in Australia. I'm, I'm not going to be that person. And, and that's absolutely fine because, you know, it's, it's much broader than just leading a company or founding a company or, you know, leading a division. Also, technology is not really an industry. It's kind of <laughs> the way that we live now. So when we say women in tech, all we're talking about is utilising, you know, what you do in your social context, but bringing it into a professional context, you know, yeah. and getting paid for it, yeah. right? Um, you know, so if you're awesome at social media and, and other digital components of your social life, surely that can translate into a professional context, you know, in a way that's super engaging for you. So I, I just think we have a lot to do to bring everyone on the journey. And I mean, the other component is also, I'm very passionate about not leaving rural Australia behind. 
there is a divide in terms of the way technology and that sort of innovation dividend has rolled out and it's largely been city-based. And, you know, that's because there's a connectivity bias to the city in the country. We're actually doing pretty well today on this podcast, but quite often the service can be, you know, connectivity can be pretty ordinary. So I do think we need to think really broadly about this. It's almost, it's almost like a human right, you know, in my view, to be connected and to be able to participate fully in a digital society. And you can't leave anyone behind unless they want to be. And if they want to be, you know, that's absolutely fine, as long as they've got the choice and they can activate. Yeah. No, I think you're so, so right about regional, I think. And don't we have an incredible opportunity post-COVID, you know, with work from home is work from anywhere, right? And we've had several excellent software engineers at ReadyTech that have decided to move to regional areas because that's what they wanted to do and ask if they could stay. And we were like, go for it. And it's worked exceptionally well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's a perception, right, that, you know, needs to be and can be broken down really, really quickly because we have, we have the same. And yeah, you might think, oh, if people don't turn up to the office, if people, you know, are dialing into meetings and we've managed to get past that super quickly, um, you know, thanks to COVID, it's obviously been the silver lining or one of the silver linings. Yeah. But I think, we can't just take things for granted, though. You know, we have to have a program of effort that needs to be consistent and that needs to be backed by government, by private citizens and companies to say we're going to have people from all walks of life, you know, in our company, you know, in, in our organisations, whatever that organisation may be. We have to think about education much more broadly. Um, you know, we have to... Um, be proactive in welcoming women and others who are still in the minority in particular jobs. And, you know, we've got to get serious about it and not just talk about it, but actually do things. Do things. Totally, totally correct. Amen to that. We spoke about, we fought really fortunate to work together at the Digital Skills Organisation. And just to dig a little bit further into that, and outside of some of these areas on access and diversity, you know, we still obviously have chronic skill shortage in this area there's just not enough technology talent to fill the roles and of course a huge growing number of roles so can you sort of share some insights from your perspective as to you know why why are we not acquiring the tech and digital skills fast enough as a, as a workforce yeah gosh i think if i really really knew the answer i'd kind of bottle it and sell it but i think we did not realize as a nation the gravity of the situation um yeah. so we got the future forecasting wrong in my view and what has now happened is it's such a big problem, it almost seems insurmountable. And so it's kind of not getting, yeah. um, we're not we're not treating it, you know, in the same way as we would if it was just kind of, oh, we don't have enough skilled immigrants coming in, like let, let's issue a type of visa. It, like, it's such a multi-pronged approach that is required now that it does need, you know, public-private leadership um, yeah. in the space and that, has also been difficult to come by in all sorts of areas over the past decade or so at the very least. One thing that I I guess I do think is that we have not really thought about the skills, the underlying skills that make up almost any job of the future that we need to develop as a nation versus the jobs that need to be filled. And so turning that kind of jobs that need to be filled to the skills that need to be developed 
is is where we need to go as a nation so that we have actually this very broad skill base that we're developing and whether or not those skills get deployed here or elsewhere actually doesn't matter, you know, provided we continue to invest in and develop the right skills. So I think that's really fundamental and that starts in school, but it also continues um, on the job. And so the incentives around on-the-job skill development, adoption, upskilling, cross-skilling really just haven't been there. There actually isn't a good framework for particularly small and medium enterprise to adopt. And that's where I think the DSO has come in and is trying to do some really interesting pieces of work, experiments, partnerships. And we've also then now got the fortunate position where we've had some really successful tech companies, you know, like the Atlassians and the Canvas and the safety cultures, you know, of this world culture amps and so forth coming through when we've had a really great fintech, you know, um, you know, we've had afterpays and zip monies and prospers and things like that coming through as well. So, you know, we've now got this bank of really successful tech companies who have been there and done that to a certain extent and yep. can actually bring that expertise to the fore. And so we've actually got a chance to make public private leadership work. And I think that's where, you know, the DSO, the Tech Council of Australia, some of the, you know, fintech associations, you know, et cetera, are coming to be able, they're able to bring a set of propositions to government that are actionable within the economy. You know, we need government to listen. We need government to be open-minded as to where the solutions come from. And we need to understand that bureaucracy, government, industry bodies, um, schools, and private companies, public companies all need to work together. We just haven't really, I don't think we've had the leadership that kind of says we're going we're gonna to pull together as a nation. We wait until there's a grave crisis like mm. a war or COVID yeah. and, we, and we pull yeah. together as a nation. And, yeah. you know, or the lack of clouds. digital skills, yeah, the, la- the lack <laughs> of digital skills is a grave crisis. We just can't see it in quite the same way. Um, and we can't put it off any longer. We're just we're just going to be yeah. so much the poorer for it. You talk about the employer side. You know, I think we've. I guess what we've seen is, I guess, the need for employers to take more responsibility here. You know, really invest more in people. Yes. Looking at options. You know, the apprenticeship model and cadetships and so forth. Right. So, talk a bit about that. Employers, I think, have always had a sense of the value of developing their people. So I don't think that's new. What it's difficult to do is to balance the development of your people with the demands of, you know, a fast-growing economy, um, shareholder expectations. So there's a level of normalisation, at least particularly at the shareholder and investor level, to understand that investing in our people Mm -hmm. is part of building a sustainable organisation. It may not yield the dividend today, but it does later on. And so... There are definitely a few companies um, that that understand that. And, you know, but I think if we still have those same shareholder expectations for a level of dividend or return, it drives kind of perverse outcomes in terms of investment in people in particular, because that seems to be what gets cut when, you know, when, when times get tough. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about models where, given that ESG is really coming to the fore, where we can actually be much clearer as a nation around how that investment in people comes into the ESG equation. Yep. Um, yep. And therefore, how, and how do we create a reward for that? 
but I'm kind of, yeah, I mean, I'm still thinking those things through myself. I don't know what thoughts you have, but it seems to me that, you know, it is going to come largely from employers. Employers do need to have some level of incentive um, to be able to commit to multi-year programs for the development of their people. Unless, you know, unless they just happen to be in an industry which is, you know, very high yielding and high growing, but not everybody is because we have a whole lot of different industries going through various, you know, levels of transition. And so not everybody's in a technology company, which is fast growing, right? So I think that's where the DSO came in as well to try, you know, to try and look at how do we build bridges between all of these diverse Mm -hmm. sets of participants. I guess the final thing is like around digital apprenticeships or cadetships. This just seems so obvious to me when anybody asks, (laughs) you know, like, I just don't understand why it's not happening, why it's kind of almost not mandated. But, you know, when anyone says, oh, you know, Emma, what do you think John or Jane, you know, should be doing, you know, as as part of, you know, preparing for a working career, I'd be like, get an internship as soon as you can, right? Get into a company and be part of a company, find what you like, what you don't like. But the reality is there are internships, there are internships. And, you know, what we really want to see is some standards applied to what a digital apprenticeship or internship looks like so that we have a lifting of everyone overall, not just a few people who end up at a couple of good companies that have got some good programs in place. We don't want winners and losers in this. We want everyone to be a winner. And so, you know, that's why a scheme like a digital apprenticeship or cadetship, you know, which is standards-based and skills-tested, is so important. Absolutely. And I think I've just find your concept on ESG really interesting. So uh, let's explore that one another time. I sure. think more <laughs> of an expectation on, you know, the development of people. I think that, you know, your comment about shareholders is, is absolutely right, that uh, it's a long-term investment, right? And often you're running companies, you're dragged towards more the short-term outcomes. I think the concept in the UK is really interesting. I think that the ability to have use incentives like payroll tax and so forth you know to drive uh, numbers of apprenticeships or hours of training uh, there's uh, there's huge potential there but I think some additional layers of intervention uh, feel do feel appropriate due to the scale of the problem yeah I mean it, it would have you, you would think that if we were getting really serious about it we would effectively not tax the learning process right yeah so if someone is a junior employee or in their first couple of yeah. years yeah. Um, maybe it's even in their first year as a senior employee even at a new organization you don't pay payroll tax on that person because they're yeah. not value contributing until kind of year two right yeah. um so looking at how how and when to tax I think is um you know I, I look we're very privileged we live in a wonderful country in Australia I have no complaint about the level of taxes we we pay per se because we have a wonderful health system we have you know by and large a, a very good base education system I think there's improvements but it's you know I'm not sort of um saying that we shouldn't be paying tax I just think that there's we want to use the structures that we have mm. to speed up the end result that we want right so yeah. yeah I would have thought that taxing learning is perverse this is going to be an interesting one I'm going to ask you this one so I think I see very clearly that you're a believer in lifelong learning and you've no doubt experienced a lot of formal and informal education uh, yeah. and, uh, and other types of learning in your story so just sort of interested how you think about I guess the ideal mix of in a fast-changing workplace you know, how, how should, should we think about, you know, the mix between those two types of, of, of learning in the workplace? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, we were actually doing some OKR reviews um, yeah. this morning, um, I was, and the way that we have um, set it up at our executive team level that we're um, kind of experimenting with and looking to, you know, hopefully cascade down is, you know, each executive team member is responsible for a functional area. Um, and so, you know, there are functional OKRs, you know, technology OKRs or product OKRs, whatever it may be. But each leader also has individual OKRs, which are solely focused around the development that they need to do as an individual in order to deliver the value that they seek to do as a functional leader. And so it's kind of this blend of embedded learning, I guess, in order yeah. to deliver a valuable outcome. And I think when I think about lifelong learning, yes, there's learning that's just pure curiosity, right? And I am absolutely love like anyone jumping down a YouTube rabbit hole and, you know, going deep on something, right? And I'd like to, I'd like to do think I am a naturally curious person, but more and more, you know, I think about the ways in which I can and continue to embed learning that delivers a particular outcome that is required for agri-digital, but also meets an individual need that I have as a learner. And I think that type of learning, you see the utility of it straight away, you get to apply it. And so it becomes not just kind of an intellectual exercise, but an applied learning um, component, which is, you know, just makes it much stickier, I think. And therefore, if we look at it from that perspective, we'll, we'll just never stop, we'll never stop learning. That also means I think that as we get older and perhaps, and I'm in my late 40s now, but as we get older, there is that bias to kind of think that we know stuff because we're older. Um, you know, there's that kind of knowledge age bias. And if we took the approach that we don't, you know, really know anything, what would we really focus on learning if we didn't know anything versus we think that we know everything and therefore, you know, our approach is how can I tell you what I know, right? So I think we just need, kind of need to flip the lifelong learning model away from telling people what we know to actually assuming that we know nothing. And if we did that, it would mean that I would be equally comfortable in a classroom with a 16-year-old and with a 106-year-old all learning the same thing. Mm. So it would sort of take away that um, level of discomfort or embarrassment that we have about admitting we have gaps, admitting that, you know, we've got so much to learn in a particular area. It just needs to be part of life. And I think the other thing that's changed is it's not necessarily going to come with a stamp or a degree or, you know, something in a frame, right? And it's completely worthy, even if that's not the case, and if we look at it in the sense of applied learning, then we will know whether or not someone has learnt it because we will see it in action. We don't need a frame on a wall in order to be convinced about it. So, you know, the bias should be in the later years to applied learning, in my view. Yeah, super interesting. I think really, really helpful. I think we're, we're coming to the end of our time and... Like I've loved talking Already? to you. Already? Oh, no. I know. I know. It's literally an hour <laughs> and it went to me, it went in a heartbeat. And I, because I've loved talking to you about your patchwork of your career, but also a patchwork of ideas that we've explored. So uh, I often like to finish with some sort of big ideas for the future and I guess reflecting again on the fast pace of technology change. You know, we've talked about 
blockchain, but so any big predictions for the future or any big opportunities uh, that you're really passionate about for our world? Yeah, so I do have a couple that I am really, really excited about. (laughs) (laughs) So areas that I'm really excited about, and it is related to blockchain, is decentralized finance or DeFi, um, some people call it. And the idea that we can completely democratize access to money and the way that people can invest um, or earn a return on their money, I think is super, super interesting. We're certainly thinking about that at AgriDigital. Like should banks, for example, be funding the supply chain or should the supply chain fund itself by reallocating free capital when and where it's needed? Yeah. You know, so you know, these are things that we find super interesting and, and like, an that ecos- I've had. like an ecosystem of uh, DeFi within that community. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the new the ne- it's like peer-to-peer, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. 2.0 or 3.0, right? And it needs some things like, you know, a fully functioning blockchain environment, um, reliable sources of stores of value or, you know, currencies, digital currencies to help back that. So anyway, that's something I'm really, really interested in because I think it has a huge opportunity to take what capital is tied up in different areas and release that back into where it's needed, when it's needed. And so you sort of get this real-time capital allocation, which I think is really interesting. So, you know, that's something to watch and that will kind of, I think, will bubble away in different ways. Um, Another area that I'm really fascinated by is around, uh, there's so many, but I'm just going to kind of choose one and that is actually around the way that IoT devices are going to be deployed and brought online and the information and data is going to be collated. We've been talking about IoT for such a long time. It's already embedded in many industries, but there hasn't really been a wholesale rollout to the point that you know we can get access to data anywhere in real time, which would enable so so many parts of our world to be more efficient than what they are. So that's one that I continue to watch and continue to, to look at. And interestingly, you know, it is through things like connections with satellites to, you know, receive small data packets and things like that, that we're going to make that happen. So um, I think that's super interesting. The final one which is not not really technology-based at all, but I'm really interested in is the kind of return to nature, return to community movement. Um, And I I think that's kind of almost unstoppable, I think in a really, really pleasant way. And I think it's going to change society because instead of all being in cities, you know, with city infrastructure, we will be located in diverse communities and connected in different ways. And that could be geographically, connected, but it could also, you know, be connected in other ways. And so really interested in how that changes the way that we think, um, the way that we connect, uh, the values that we hold dear, the way that we address climate, you know, all of those sorts of things. So that's just kind of one that's bubbling away in the back of my brain as well. No, really cool. I think that was awesome to hear about what you see on the horizon and lift our heads up. Yeah, because because I think also, you know, on that kind of return to nature, return to community piece and IoT and DeFi, 
the sorts of things that enables that like an agri-digital we think are super interesting is a bifurcation of the supply chain where you continue to have global commodity supply chains, but you now have really workable local, regional, niche supply chains. Yeah. Like I think that bifurcation is inevitable, but the sorts of things that are going to speed it up are like those three kind of ideas that I was talking about. That's exciting vision for the future. So this is the last thing I'm going to ask you about. Okay. We, we talked about risk and for anyone listening, it might be people listening in and they're thinking about making a change in their lives, taking a risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're thinking about how they might put a dent in the world. So uh, what message might you give to them? The first thing I would do is share it with someone else. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you have that idea, or you have that thought, you're going to take that first step. It seems huge, probably is huge. Share it with someone else and um, immediately halve it. <laughs> and, you know, maybe it's two or three people that you share it with. It does help obviously get feedback straight away um, and hopefully support for that decision. But the second most important thing is it holds you accountable. If you have that decision that you're about to make that big step, do it. You know, you know, you need to. That's why you're thinking about it. So um, find someone to hold you accountable to it. Really good advice. Such great advice. So Emma Weston, uh, it's been awesome to talk to you thank you so so much thank you also for being a great role model uh oh, thank it's, you, been, it's been inspiring to hear from you and look we wish you the very best for agri digital and we'll be watching closely and we'll also be watching out for some of the next stages on your ecg chart because <laughs> might not be might not be coming to the end just yet but thanks so much for coming on the ready podcast thanks so much i loved it So I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with the wonderful Emma Weston on the Reading Podcast. I, for one, am very glad that Emma did choose to back herself, take those risks, and is seeking to change the world for the better. If you like this episode, please let the world know. Share it with anyone in your network that might be interested. And if you haven't already done so, please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Well, that's it for me for this episode of The Ready Podcast. We have some more big conversations coming soon. So stay tuned until next time. Keep it ready.